My text for this morning is from uh, the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians, and we'll be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And before I get started, I should pray, because I need the Holy Spirit's help. You know, preaching is something which is totally dependent upon the Spirit of God. And if he doesn't act, then I'm just up here saying words. So let's ask for the Holy Spirit's help. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would send the Holy Spirit to us now. I pray that only the truth would be spoken, and I pray that only the truth would be heard. And Father, I pray that the Spirit would open up the eyes of our hearts so that we can see your Son, Jesus, in all of his glory and in all of his beauty, in all of his loveliness. I pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, a couple of years ago, I watched a lovely little documentary called 20 Feet from Stardom. The documentary follows the lives and stories of several backup singers who spent their careers providing backup vocals to some of the world's most famous bands. Though their names are for the most part unknown, and though few have consciously enjoyed their voices, most of us have heard their voices, and most of us have benefited from the extra but important something that they have added to some of the world's greatest hits. In many ways, these backup singers are the young sung heroes of the music-making industry. They have added richness and texture, subtlety and nuance to all sorts of music, elevating songs beyond what they would otherwise be, and yet these singers are unknown and unapplauded. When I reflect back on this documentary, two things stick in my mind. The first is that almost all of these backup singers were black women. The second is that almost all of these women learned to do what they do best while they were little girls in church. Several of them are the daughters of pastors. In the context of the black church with its glorious and towering tradition of spiritual music, these women learned to lend their voices to the whole. They learned to sing not in the limelight but in the context of a congregation. They learned that true harmony was achieved not by overpowering someone else or blasting everyone away, but by supporting others, playing off of others, and working with others to create beautiful music. And they learned that this sometimes meant pulling back and fading away, while at other times it meant coming more towards the forward, but always conscious of the fact that they were trying to make the whole better, that they were trying to make the choir or the congregation sound better. These women learned that with a choir, with a group of people, they were able to paint beautiful musical vistas which are necessarily impossible for the soloist to do. And you know, the church in Philippi was a very good church. The church in Philippi was a church who had learned to live in harmony with one another. It wasn't a perfect church, but it was a good church. They loved each other, and they'd figured out how to work well with each other. They didn't quarrel, and they didn't fight too much. The church in Philippi was the kind of church that you would want to take your kids to, the kind of church that you would want to grow up at. The Christians in Philippi were generous, and they were joyful. 
They were a lovely little group of people who loved the Lord Jesus and sought to forward and advance the cause of his gospel in the world. And by the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit, they built for themselves a fairly unproblematic church. This is why the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians is fairly sparse on rebukes. You don't find very many rebukes in Paul's letter to the Philippians, which, if you know Paul at all, isn't typical. Usually his letters are filled with rebukes. There's a little short rebuke at the end of the book in chapter 4 for two women, Euodia and Syntyche, but otherwise the book is overwhelmingly encouraging. Paul is overwhelmingly encouraged by his brothers and sisters in Philippi. And so the whole letter to the Philippians has to do with Paul encouraging the Philippians to keep on walking in the good way, to keep striving after the same things. This being said, as we move into chapter 2 of the letter to the Philippians, we find Paul offering the Philippians a series of encouraging warnings, or what you might call encouraging exhortations. You'll see that Paul was not directly rebuking the Philippians for anything, but he was making them aware of the real risks involved in working together for the sake of the gospel. In particular, the Apostle Paul was warning them about the great risks of selfishness and pride. Selfishness and pride. And he was showing them that selfishness and pride are the sort of things that can subtly creep into a church and then eventually ruin the joy, unity, and witness of a church. Over the course of his long ministry, the Apostle Paul saw time and time again that selfishness and pride were like a cancer, which, when left untreated, ruined churches, killed churches. To put all of this positively, as we move into chapter 2 of this letter, we'll find that Paul's great concern was that his friends in Philippi kept working together, maturing together, and progressing together in Christ for the cause of the gospel. And this is why Paul urged his friends to engage in loving and humble service. Paul did not want selfishness and pride to destroy the Philippians' progress and joy in the faith. Paul begins his warning and exhortation to the Philippians by asking them to all be of the same mind and heart based on the precious things that they all have in common. In verse 1, Paul calls to mind a series of things that all of the Philippians enjoy together, namely encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, affection, and sympathy. These are all large and enjoyable elements of the Christian life that Paul wanted the Philippians to remember, cherish, and prize as they carried on with the business of progressing in the faith. It's almost as if Paul is a key member in a great, big, loving family who is calling all of the members of that family to go on loving each other and helping each other as they go along through life. Paul refers to the head of the family, Jesus Christ, and the great encouragement that flows from Christ to the various family members. Paul refers to the great comfort that comes from the love of Christ and the great comfort that comes from the mutual love that all of the different members have for one another. Paul refers to the Holy Spirit who has made his home in the hearts of each and every family member. And he reminds the family that they all participate in the Spirit, living out their lives together in the renewing and enabling power and love of the Spirit. Paul reminds the family of affection and sympathy, 
which is to say of the fellow feeling the camaraderie and the love that they all share with one another. If any of you grew up with siblings, sometimes your parents reminded you that you loved your siblings, right? They told you, remember, you love them. Paul brings to mind all of these precious, joyful, and cherished realities because he wants the Philippians to guard these realities. He wants the Philippians to protect these realities and not to ruin these realities. As I said, the letter to the Philippians is a very forward-thinking book. The letter has this great sense of forward movement, this great sense of pushing on together in the faith. And we can tell that the Apostle Paul was eager to have the Philippians continue on progressing in the faith, building on what had come before. Paul goes on to say, verse 2, speaking as someone who finds great joy in seeing his friends progress in the faith, Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In these verses, Paul is exhorting his friends in Philippi to all adopt a particular mindset together. You could call this mindset the mindset of humility. The word mind, which can also be translated understanding, appears three times in our text, twice in verse 2 and then once in verse 5. This signals to us that the mind or the understanding are important in the Christian life and that Paul is keen to have his friends unite in a single understanding of the faith so that they can progress and go on together without breakdown or ruin. And if we miss this idea of mindset, If we miss the idea that Paul is commending a certain mindset, then we miss the whole point of this text. Paul's response to the very real risks of selfishness and pride in the church is to urge his fellow Christians to adopt a particular mindset, a mindset of humility. This mindset of humility that Paul commends to his friends has two components. The first component is a shifting of attention and preference off of one's own self and onto others. The second component is the recognition that Christ is the ultimate example of humility and the ultimate example of how to live the Christian life. So we have one mindset, two components. Let's look at the first component first. Let me just read verses three and four again. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, I want to be very clear. Paul's mindset of humility flies in the face of our sinful natures. Avoiding ambition and conceit, being humble, considering others more significant than ourselves, and looking to the interests of others is not what comes naturally to sinful human beings. Human beings, because of our fall into sin and the subsequent corruption of our natures, are naturally selfish creatures. Great Christian thinkers like Augustine of Hippo and Martin Luther would say that we're turned in on ourselves. We're obsessed with ourselves. And so Paul's mindset of humility flies in the face of what comes naturally to us human beings. On top of all this, This mindset flew in the face of the Philippians culture, as indeed it flies in the face of our contemporary Canadian culture. The culture of ancient Philippi and the culture of contemporary Canada are both cultures of self-care 
and self-promotion, which means that both of these cultures have made room for people to pursue selfish ambitions at the expense of others. Foundational to both of these cultures was and is the belief that the basic and best way of getting ahead in life is to take care of one's own self, to promote one's own self. Within both cultures, both ancient Philippi and contemporary Canada, people would have and do say things like, the only way I'm going to succeed is if I prioritize my own goals. I can't get distracted by other people. I can't get bogged down in tricky relationships. I can't subordinate my goals to the goals of others. I don't know why I do it, but every once in a while, I'll read the advice column of a popular newspaper. Usually I go to the liberal British newspaper, The Guardian. And you know, the thing I find interesting is that most people aren't actually looking for advice. Most people are looking for permission. More specifically, the people who write in to the newspaper are looking for permission to be selfish. My hunch is that their consciences have, have begun to bug them. And so they write into the newspaper so that they can get some affirmation for their bad decision. And the sad thing is that the newspaper and the associated online community are usually happy to applaud the individual's decision to, say, leave their spouse, cut off contact with their children, forsake an older relative, to lie, and so on. We live in a culture which prizes self-care over the care of others, a culture that prizes self-ambition over collective advancement, as did the culture of the Philippians. And so the Apostle Paul looked at all of this and saw in it a great and threatening risk. Paul saw that if the selfish ambition which infected the world got into the church, then the church would be ruined. This is why Paul's exhortation to the Philippians is to avoid selfishness at all costs. And I want us all to notice how uncompromising and how unqualified Paul's writing is here. Paul writes, verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Selfish ambition and conceit destroy families, they destroy businesses, they destroy friendships, they destroy whole countries. And here we see that selfish ambition and conceit can destroy a very good church. As I mentioned before, the Philippian church was a good church. And Paul was writing to them in a spirit of encouragement. Paul wanted the Philippian church to keep on going as they were going. This is why he was revealing to them the risks involved in being the church. And here Paul is showing the Philippians and us that one of the best ways to ruin a church is to have some of its members overcome by a spirit of selfish ambition. It's an awful and it's a disastrous thing when people begin to see the church as an arena for their own self-advancement. And it's an awful and disastrous thing when the church develops a sort of cutthroat culture where others are willing to squash others on their way to glory. The church is not supposed to be this way, and when it is this way, there's breakdown and there's ruin. Paul's exhortation in verses 3 and 4 reminds us that the Christian life is a team sport. It's something that we do together, and it's something that goes well only when we work together and help each other out. You know, growing up, my dad used to teach me and my brothers that making an assist was just as important as getting a goal, if not more important. 
Now, I usually didn't get goals, and I usually didn't make any assists, but the lesson has stuck with me through the years. My brothers were the athletes. Helping others succeed, helping the team succeed, is more important than your own personal glory. There's no room in the church for ball hogs or puck hogs, as we used to call them. The first component of Paul's commended mindset is all about getting yourself out of the way. It's all about getting your ego out of the way and ensuring that others loom larger and larger in your mind and heart. And so let's not allow ourselves to sort of weasel out from underneath this very clear exhortation. Let's not allow ourselves to drown this very clear speech in a thousand qualifications. The Apostle Paul's being very clear. Dear Christian, you should think that other people are more significant than yourselves. You should seek the interests of others as well as your own. You should do nothing, I repeat, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. I don't know about you, but this text kind of you know, punches me right in the ego. It shines a bright light on certain selfish motivations, and it leaves me no room to escape. This text says, leave your ego at the door. In fact, chuck it in the trash. Don't let your selfish ambition, your conceit, your inflated view of yourself, your false humility, or your vanity ruin the church. When you show up for church, assume that everyone is more significant than yourself and that their interests are just as important as yours. And so this is tough stuff. This is a high calling. And the Apostle Paul knew that this was tough stuff, which is why he offered us a second component in this mindset of humility. The Apostle Paul knew that no one would be able to live a life of profound humility unless they had a shining, beautiful, awe-inspiring, and heart-grabbing example of humility, which is why Paul so quickly starts to talk about Jesus. Starting in verse 5, Paul writes, Have this mind, this understanding among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And after scripture like that, I just want to say amen and amen. Right? Many refer to verses 5 through 11 of this text as the hymn of Christ. Partially because some scholars believe that these verses were actually an ancient Christian hymn. But I would say that another good reason to call it the hymn of Christ is because these words are the sort of words that you want to sing, right? And if any of you want to, you should take these words and make them into a song. I'd enjoy that. They're beautiful, aren't they? These words hold Jesus out to us. And they say, look at him. Isn't he dazzlingly lovely? Look at what he did. Isn't it all unlike anything that you've ever seen or heard before? Isn't it thrilling? Doesn't it make you want to sing? These seven verses take you through the whole life of Christ, showing you at each moment the staggering and glorious humility of Jesus. We begin in verse 6 with eternity past. Christ in the form of God, ruling and reigning with the Father and the Holy Spirit throughout all of eternity. 
And then in verse 7, we come to the nativity, to Christmas. Christ, who is God of God and light of light, is born in the likeness of men. He comes into the world as a servant, not grasping at the dignity he possesses as God. In verse 8, we sing about his life of humble obedience, which brought Christ to the point of death, even death on a cross, right? And this is the crucifixion, the atonement. And then in verse 9, we come to the exaltation. Christ is raised from the dead. He ascends into heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of God. And from there, we extend into eternity future, when one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Isn't that stunning? You know, the Bible is so efficient. It can cover so much ground in just a few verses. And Paul there, in the course of seven verses, went from eternity past to eternity future and showed you how Jesus, through the whole way, was the epitome of humble service. Paul's holding Jesus up before your eyes, and he's saying, this is what it looks like when you do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. This is what it looks like when you consider others more significant than yourselves. This is what it looks like. Jesus is what it looks like when you look to the interests of others as well as your own. It looks like God himself, God the Son, coming down out of his high heaven into the mud and dirt and messiness of sinful human life, not grasping or taking advantage of his status as God, but gladly giving it up, emptying himself of his great dignity and taking the form of a servant. He who should be served by all comes into the world to be the servant of all. And as the old hymn says, he trades the sapphire paved courts of heaven for the dirty floor of a stable. And then he lives a life of perfect and humble obedience, which ends with him dying, and not only dying, but dying in the most painful and shameful way possible on the cross. But then he's exalted, right? His name is the name above every other name. And you know, the beautiful thing is that he's exalted because he's overwhelmingly worthy of it. He did not earn his exaltation by selfish ambition. He did not earn his exaltation by conceit, or by showing others that he was more significant than they were, or by pursuing his own interests over the interests of others. Jesus is praised and Jesus is exalted all the more because he was the one who was willing to humble himself so that we might be exalted. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. I love that verse. This is the stunning and the thrilling thing about Jesus. It's not just that he's almighty and all-powerful and all-knowing and worthy of the greatest dignity and service, but that he gladly gave it up, that he gladly humbled himself for me, so that I might be exalted, so that you might be exalted. And so the Apostle Paul says to have this mind among yourselves, Paul is saying to the Philippians and to us, allow these truths about Christ to dominate your thinking. Have your mind full of Jesus' great and beautiful humility. Be inspired by these truths, motivated by these truths, comforted by these truths. Lift up Christ as the great example. Worship Christ. Worship Christ because of his great and beautiful humility. And thank him for it. Thank him for doing it all for you. 
And so Paul has been warning the Philippian church about the risks that selfish ambition, conceit, pride, and vainglory present to the church. The Apostle Paul wanted the Philippians to continue on progressing in the faith, unhindered by the trouble that comes from a church that has become selfish, self-seeking, and therefore divided and miserable. And the great remedy, the great preventative medicine that Paul holds out to the Philippians and to us is a mindset that is firmly set upon the glorious humility of Jesus. The only way that we'll be able to live out a life of humble love, the life that Paul urges on us in verses 3 and 4, is to be captured by the glorious vision of Jesus that Paul presents to us in verses 5 through 11. And so the implication is that the best way to avoid the pitfalls and risks involved in being the church, the best way to avoid the dangers of selfishness and pride, is to cultivate a mindset amongst the people of God that is dominated by a glorious vision of Jesus in all of his humility and exaltation. Humility is not something that can be enforced. I can't stand up here and say, be more humble. <laughs> right? Humility is something that needs to be inspired by an understanding of who Jesus is. And so the only thing we can do for each other is to hold out Jesus to each other and say, look at what he's like. Shouldn't we be a little, little bit more like him? And the truth is, when you're being pride, prideful, when you're being proud or selfish, the best way to just cut through all of that is to show you Jesus. And say, surely this man, more than any other, had the right to be proud, but he was humble. And so shouldn't you be humble too? Let's pray. Gracious God and loving Father, we're grateful for your Son, and we so much look forward to the day when we get to see him face to face. Lord, he's very beautiful and uh, he's made all the more beautiful because of his great humility. It's a wondrous thing and it's hard to put words to, but he was willing to give up all the great dignity and privilege of heaven for the sake of us. And I just pray that you'll give us all of eternity to be thankful and grateful for that because it'll take an eternity. I think of the last words of that hymn, Amazing Grace. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we'll have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. And that's what we want, to sing Jesus' praises forever and ever. We pray these things in his name. Amen.